it's always an honor and a privilege to be able to get up and teach on God's Word. So, as Jim said, this is for John chapter 9, so I figure with 41 verses to properly do it, yeah, three to five minutes per verse, so just hang on. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but I have spent the last month plus working through the passage for this morning, many times over, listened to a number of sermons, number of commentaries. So I've gotten to the point where I believe this morning what I'm bringing you is God's word rightly divided. Since it's been a couple weeks since we were in John chapter 8, I wanted to do a, a quick recap. You know, we had a conflict among other things, the identity of Jesus. Who was Jesus? Was he the Christ? Was he demon-possessed? Um, that culminated in John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I've been in a number of conversations with people who said Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, based on this verse and others, the leaders got it. They understood. They wanted to stone him. So I started going through a number of counseling books, reading, uh, getting ready for doing biblical counseling. I came across this in one of my books. Nobody likes to lose. When a loss occurs, it means something is wrong. But it isn't life, isn't life supposed to be filled with winners? Look at the headlines of the sports page. The accolades are given to winners, not losers. Losing hurts. It carries sharpened points that jab into our nerves and cause pain. A small loss or a large one, it doesn't matter. It hurts. And it hurts even more because we've been taught to expect we know how to handle these losses in our life. We want to be winners. We want success. We want to be in the control of our lives. You know, and those of us who, you know, sometimes see people going through pain, we wanted them to get through it faster because we don't want to have to deal with it. We don't want to, you know, we want them just, well, you get over it already. Well, the concept of loss means something is wrong, carries into almost every area of our lives. The following thoughts reflect that concept. She must not have been a good wife for him to leave her. We, we tend to blame. They failed as parents. Otherwise, that child would have stayed in the church and wouldn't have become involved in that crowd. He lost his job. I wonder what he did wrong. I just went through where we had to actually lay off somebody who did absolutely nothing wrong. If they had been living the Christian life, this wouldn't have happened. When someone suffers some of those losses that we all face at one time, we tend to wonder what they did wrong. We tend to cast blame. Have you ever thought that way about another person or yourself? I have. We've got two, pe two women on our street. Both husbands left them. So your natural tendency is to go, what happened? So I'm not going to read all 41 verses. I'll, I'll, I'll save you that. But please stand in honor while I read the first 12 of John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, It was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this the man who used to sit and beg? Some says, Is it as it is he? Others said, No, but it's like he he I don't want to get messed up here. It is not the man that No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are you, were you were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, and said to him, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Father God, please use me as your conduit to convey your word this morning. I just ask this in your son's name I pray. Amen. You have a seat. So here we have the sixth sign of John showing Jesus' deity. Remember, that was the whole point of John, was that Jesus was God. Just to kind of briefly recap, in chapter 2, we saw where he turned water into wine, which, by the way, was his first miracle at about the age of 30. In chapter 4, the official son was healed. In chapter 5, the lame man was healed. In chapter 6, we saw not only the 5,000 fed, but we also saw Jesus walking on water. And now we have this healing. So we'll also see an investigation from people who claim to be the religious elite and finish with the salvation of the beggar. There are a number of people that are we're going to look at, Jesus being the, obviously the prime example, the disciples, the beggar, his neighbors, and the religious elite. So like I said earlier, the, this chapter was preceded with a passage where Jesus hid himself from the Jewish leaders who wanted to stone him. For blasphemy. We don't know definitely where he crossed paths with the beggar. One theory is that it was directly outside the temple. You know, why? There were always beggars hanging outside the temple. So why were they always there? Well, in Matthew 21, it says, the blind came to him in the temple. The lame came to the temple and he healed them. The reality is the beggars go where crowds are. Um, beggars went to the temple because, you know, every time I come off the interstate, you see somebody hanging up a sign because there's where people are. So beggars went to the temple because devout people were at the temple. Good people went to the temple. People with compassion, people who were kind and caring went to the temple. People had to go to the temple in the morning and the evening to make sacrifices, which meant they were conscious of their sins. 
people feeling guilt about their sins are more likely to be generous. In that system, people were trying to earn their salvation. So the way the rabbis taught them to earn it was through those through alms. So I've, I have some initial things that I noticed here as I'm reading this passage, because this passage isn't really greatly in deep. It's more of a history, but, you know, we see Jesus notice a beggar, but the disciples, when they saw him, they wanted to make this a theological conversation. Who messed up? Who sinned? Rather than thinking, how do we help this guy? So where did they get the idea about whether or not this man or his parents' sin comes into the disciples' minds? There was an assumption back then that anyone suffering, they were suffering some level of punishment from God. Since this man was blind from birth, it could have been his parents. They believed that someone could even sin in the womb or before conception. Rabbis would argue that the struggle between Esau and Jacob in Rebekah's womb, you know, Esau sinned. This is how messed up it was at the time. So why do we do that? Why do we tend to blame somebody suffering on something that they did? We as humans try to rationalize answers to better help us understand and deal with hard questions. Like pain, suffering, evil. How many times have we heard, and I hear this a lot, if God was real, why is there evil or suffering? You know, the disciples assumed that the answer was simple. And the man's life could be blamed on something that he or his parents had done. They're not unlike Job's friends who were self-righteous. They looked down on him. I mean, Job's wife even said, you know, curse God and die. You know, they believed that every malady or ailment was a punishment from God for some specific sin. Jesus didn't dismiss the concept of first sin, but it's unwise or uncharitable to, for us to judge suffering based on them being penalized by God or attribute their suffering to some specific degree of guilt. You know, the sicker you are, the, the, the more you sinned. You know, that's a false assumption. John Calvin looked at it this way. In the first place, as Scripture testifies that all the sufferings to which the human race is liable proceed from sin. Whenever we see any person wretched, wretched, we cannot prevent the thought from immediately presenting itself to our minds that the distresses which fall heavily upon him are punishments inflicted by the hand of God. But here we commonly err in three ways, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said. First, he says, while every man is ready to blame others with extreme bitterness, how often do we blame ourselves for our own? The second error lies in the excessive severity, for no sooner is any man touched by the hand of God, we turn to, they committed some major crime, some major sin that, that God's dealing with them, even to the point of maybe even questioning their salvation. Thirdly, 
we do wrong in this respect that we pronounce condemnation on all without exception whom God visits with the cross or with tribulation. There's no way for us to know the reason why they're going through what they're going through. You know, in this passage, the disciples could have taken the role of caring servant. They could have tried to figure out how they could minister to this man's needs. Instead, they took the position of judge. So the question posed to Jesus presented a false contrast. Jesus did not, however, take the bait. He recognized that the works of God would be shown in his son's work. So Jesus refused to accept the disciples' alternative of blame and, in fact, shifted the discussion from blame to the grace of God in the face of human need. So the storyline story thus signals that in this passage, Jesus was going to use the man's tragedy to re reveal the works of God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Mercy may seem slow, but it is sure. The Lord in unfailing wisdom has appointed a time for the outgoings of his gracious power. And God's time is the best time. That's not to say that every trial we go through is some punishment. You know, it could be for our refinement. In James chapter 1, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we're under a trial's fire, it's not unlike the smelting process in purifying gold. They put gold under fire as the impurities seep up. They skim them off so gold becomes purer and purer. Peter, in trying to encourage the dispersed Christians that were under severe persecution, he said this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul to the Corinthians showing that God's grace sustains us through our distress. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly at, of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ that then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Beloved, God's purpose, purposes are not always visible to us. But we do have his assurance. What does he say in Romans 8.28? Some things work for good? No. All things work for good. Not necessarily our immediate good, but our ultimate good. So in verses 5 and 6, I'm sure this caused the disciples a little bit of a concern. You know, we were talking, they're talking about his earthly works. 
you know, these verses not only operate as a messianic announcement, but that his earthly work was temporary, basically, while I'm here. You know, this temporary nature of what Jesus was saying was in conflict of how they were perceiving the Messiah to be. He was going to rescue them from their oppression. So they, they, they expected a warrior, and they have a servant who's willing to lay down his life for us. So we finally get to the miracle in verses 6 and 7. The irony for me is Jesus performed this miracle was not actually requested. He just did it. We don't even hear from the man for a couple in another verse or two. Should we not apply this to our own ministry? If we see something that needs doing, just do it. Paul put it this way in Galatians 6 about opportunities to do ministry. He said, so then we have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right, so I have a question in my notes. I have to figure out how to phrase this, but why did he spit in the mud? Couldn't he have just touched them? Of course he could. But back then, saliva was believed to have healing powers. So... You know, there's a couple uh, passages where he, he spit on, but I think with with this, the test was, was the man going to be obedient to what God said? So now after he's healed, he returns to his surroundings. He's probably on cloud nine. You know, he's never seen before. I always thought it was funny when they asked where Jesus was. How does a blind man who just now started seeing know where anything is? So this is a man and his family, I'm sure, were well-known to these people. Pretty much the only thing a blind man could do at that time was beg outside the temple. So these people would have probably passed him at least two times a day, if not more. Um, so why do we have some who cannot figure out who this that this is the guy? I mean, he's even saying, I'm the man. Uh you know, I've wondered sometimes if if you look at some of the the biblical healings, the instantaneous healings, what that looked like. You know, can you imagine? You know, that someone who was blind from birth all of a sudden could see, or somebody who had a deformed hand, and all of a sudden he was healed. I just it, it boggles my mind what that would have been like as an eyewitness. Um. You know, in a few chapters, a little bit later, we're going to see a dead man come out of the grave. After he was dead, what, three or four days? Uh, so I think the bottom line here is that this miracle was beyond what they could even fathom. So now we get into verse 13. One thing that comes out of the uh, investigation that these religious leaders, quote unquote, they kept asking how it happened. They should have switched the letters and who di who did it instead of how who. I mean, even John the Baptist knew who Jesus was before he was born. So in this first interview, we see that the crux of their argument is legalism, because Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. 
And one of the books I was reading, actually, what he did would not have been against Jewish law anyway. But the, there's, there's, what's the one thing in verses 13 to 17 we don't see? They don't deny the healing happened. Seeing this miracle, they should have fallen on their, feet, on their face and worshiped God. However, instead of this, there was division between either he was working on the Sabbath or he was a sinner. They even asked the man, who do you say he is? Well, I say he's a prophet. So like atheists assert today, they refused to go wherever they refused to go wherever the evidence led. They rule out God from the equation before even beginning the discussion. There has to be another reason that for this to have happened. So they go seeking for the other reason. So they call in his parents. And I've, I've, another thing I found interesting about this part is, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. So they gave a direct answer to the first question, and they, get, they dodged the second question. John tells us that they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. At that time, that was a big deal. John talked about it prior in chapter 7 as well. The synagogue was the focal point for the entire community. When he says that they were afraid of the Jews, he wasn't talking about all Jews. He was talking about those religious leaders who could basically excommunicate them, kick them out of their community. So now coming into the second part after the parents leave, John doesn't tell us how long between the investigations, but they call the man in a second time. This time, we see no new evidence. What we see is a hardening of the Pharisee's position and the frustration of the man, just like, just like in chapter 8. Things were getting pretty contentious right now. So it's interesting because they say, you'll read... Give God the glory. Basically what that means is they're swearing him in to, for his testimony. However, their verdict was introduced trying to dissuade the man. We know that this man is a sinner. So they tried to use their power to cause him to recant. I think it would be kind of like today. Do you swear to tell the whole truth of, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about this heinous murderer to so help you, God? He said whether or not Jesus was a sinner, he didn't know. But what he did know was what happened to him. He could only testify to the truth. He stuck to his guns, just like in our testimony. Nobody can argue with what we went through, what we know as the truth for us. So now things are really getting pretty testy. Uh, they keep asking him, 
So what did Jesus do? How did he do this? Now the guy's getting fed up. I think in today's vernacular, I already answered you what you ask. Why are you so dense? So he tries to slam them by challenging them. Do you want to be his disciples too? They're not happy. (laughs) This was a slur uh, that they obviously got. So now he's met with extreme hostility. The irony here is that the the Jewish officials didn't even realize they were condemning themselves. They saw the evidence. They saw all the evidence. And they still denied it. You know, uh, John gives us some insight into why. When Jesus said, why do, you under, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear the word, or, or hear my word. They had centuries of doing things their way, thinking that they were doing it God's way. Jesus comes on the scene and heals tons of people, and they refuse to see see it for what it is. You know, the the man was amazed that this group of a men of God could not recognize the work of God. So the man's theology was basically signs and wonders. He had identifying the healing. But we must not assume that's always the case, just like we can't assume if you're not healed, for some reason, God didn't want to heal you. It might be for your testing. It might be for your trial. It might be for your refinement. You know, some of those evangelists, quote unquote, on TV go, well, if you have enough faith, if somebody doesn't get healed, what's their natural reaction? They didn't have enough faith. I've been in conversations with people on Facebook that are from like Nigeria, and they'll get satellite broadcast from people like Benny Hinn. And and so we're in this we were in this conversation. It's been a while back now. You know, and you have to wonder if these people who have healing powers, why aren't they in the hospital? So here's the thing. Our dealing with unbelievers looks look a lot like this. When when we deal with them and we start the youth up in a, in a few weeks, we're gonna start going through apologetics. And teaching how to defend your faith. But when we deal with them, they're always looking for evidence, but they refuse to go where the evidence leads. So at this point, the man has been kicked out of the synagogue. He's lost his social circle. His friends, essentially everything. So then we see the man's second interaction with Jesus. He was transformed from someone with religious head knowledge, simply looking at the evidence of what happened to him to a person of saving faith. A good shepherd always cares for his sheep. In the next chapter, we're going to be talking about the the shepherd and the sheepfold where shepherds protect their sheep.
Jesus heard that the man had been kicked out of the community. He went and found him. He revealed himself to the former blind man. This man had not seen Jesus, I think, up to this point. And as Jim quoted Romans ten seventeen earlier, faith comes in by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He knew the man's voice. He knew who was there who anointed his eyes. Now he could put a face with that voice. So in 35 through 41, I want to bring up something here. Jesus heard that the man had been cast out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He, saw, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You know, one of the things I get into in numerous conversations in Facebook Christian groups I'm in, Jesus never demanded worship. He didn't deny it either. He didn't tell the man to stop like the disciples did. So did he ask to be worshipped? No, but the man saw that he deserved to be worshipped. So in John's closing here, Jesus brings to light the impact of his coming. There were ones who falsely imagined that they had special insight into the things of God. They became spiritually blind opponents of God's way. We then have those who seem less informed and able to see what the Spirit of God opens and able to see that the Spirit of God opens their eyes and leads them to faith. So we have a man who was born blind. According to Jesus, he was born blind for this moment. Jim talked about last week the invisible hand of God. This man lived in this state so that the work could be shown at this moment in history. This was the reason why he was blind. It's worth noting here that the beggar did nothing toward either his physical or his spiritual healing. You know, just like us, believers, we were once dead. We did nothing to garner our salvation, but it was through the mercy and grace of God. So he was physically given sight and ultimately spiritual sight. We have a group of people here that were supposed to be the spiritual elite who were spiritually dead or blind. These people saw all the evidence. There was an explosion of signs during that three years. John even tells us that everything Jesus did could not be written in books because no books could contain everything he did during that three years. These people knew what to look for in a Messiah. The evidence was smacking them in the face, and they turned a blind eye to it. So I found this quote in closing recently from A.W. Pink that I think is relevant for today. It is because of their fearful state that until the Holy Spirit actually regenerates, all who hear the gospel are totally incapacitated for any spiritual understanding of it. The majority who hear it imagine that they are already saved. 
that they are real Christians and no arguments from the preacher, no power on earth can ever convince them to the contrary. Tell them there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. And it makes no more impression than does water on a duck's back. Warn them that, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And they are no more moved than they than are the rocks by the ocean spray. No, they suppose that they have been they have nothing to repent of, and know not their repentance needs to be repented of. They have far too high an opinion of their religious profession to allow that they are in any danger of hell. Thus, unless a mighty miracle of grace is wrought within them, unless divine power shatters their complacency, there is no hope at all for them. So, beloved, if you realize that you are not in the right space with God, if you've realized that you are more like the religious leaders who were lost than the beggar, come talk to one of the elders today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that you've given us, that you have justified us before a holy God. Father, as I just appreciate that your son came as we celebrated this week his birth, that he came to die for our sins. Father, I just ask this in your son's name I pray. Amen.